This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, Ian and I discuss why player characters may be prone to violence in D&D, the choice of using meta-language in-universe, and how D&D reveals its players' relationship with power and uncertainty. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we now stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey, how's it going, man? Hey. <laughs> so, um, so Ian, I know you had something that you wanted to, uh, you had like a topic for today. So let's, uh, yeah. let's just dive right into it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's it's kind of a twofold topic. So basically, uh, one is I want to kind of talk a little bit more about this choice that some DMs make to uh, include meta language in their universe, like in universe, in game stuff. Um, so like spell slots, classes, and uh, you know things like that, because those are really the big meta things. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about, which I'll actually present first is uh, how how PCs, how player characters uh, are interacting with NPCs that they've never met before and how the NPCs treat a person they've never met before. Because uh, what happened to me today, uh, and you know, it, it wasn't anything unsafe uh, per se, uh, but basically what happened to me today is that I was running some errands before the recording here. And as I was running those errands, I uh, was, I, I had to stop for some gas. Uh, so I pull into the gas station, uh, you know, it's just got to get some gas. And this guy uh, comes up behind me. I mean, I see him coming from a mile away, but, you know, he approaches me and asks if, uh, if I'm headed to uh, the town that I live in. Uh, and I say, yes. Uh, I don't, I mean, like, I don't know why he would have guessed that per se. Um, <laughs> but uh I say yes, and he asks if he can have a ride because his car broke down uh, and he had moved the car to a service station. But unfortunately, of course, it's a Sunday uh, at the time of this recording and they, you know, they weren't open. There was no way to have it fixed and, and let him get home, which he actually lives uh, in like a few towns over. But he only asked about my town. So I was like, uh, a little wary, to be honest. I was rather skeptical. Uh, I kept my distance. You know, I'm a martial artist as well as John, and uh, I I'm aware that you know the best way to avoid a avoid a, an attack is to avoid an attack. So you just kind of like keep your distance and don't put yourself in a, a dangerous situation. That was what was going through my mind as I was talking to this gentleman, um, and he you know he was nice. Uh, I was on my guard the whole time, but he he was a nice guy, and. <clears throat> ultimately I said yes, uh, because I had confirmed at least enough that he didn't seem to be carrying any weapons. He's like 70 years old. 
uh, as well. So, you know, I felt pretty confident in terms of a hand-to-hand -hand altercation. And, you know, if he tries to pull anything while I'm driving the car, then, you know, it's kind of curtains for both of us. So I don't know if there would be anything to accomplish there per se. Um, my, as I was driving, of course, my biggest concern was, uh, you know, what if I'm driving into a trap? What if this is like a scout or somebody who is like, you know, uh, in, in the employ of the uh, mafia or whatever, you know, like some gang. Uh, I know the mafia is a little bit dated at this point, but uh, in Sweden, it's not. They have they have a mafia there. I'm half Swedish for those who are wondering why I bring that up. Uh, but yeah, so I was like, you know, uh, keeping my eye out, looking around, checking to see if there's any like cars following me, uh, checking up ahead because as I was approaching the stop, I was like, I wonder if there's going to be a bunch of guys standing in the lot or something like that. Um, there wasn't, it was a Walgreens. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'd hope that it's uh, fairly secure over there. <clears throat> and so I just uh, brought him there. Uh, we talked, I said, you know, we talked about like generic stuff, like how the town has changed since he grew up and, you know, how things looked back in the day and that kind of thing. And I, I tried to keep him talking, honestly, that was my strategy that if I keep him talking, then he's probably not going to be thinking about mugging me. So <laughs> then, uh, and so like you can see, I was a bit nervous. I was really skeptical. I was like, this is, I've never done this before for good reason. I don't necessarily trust uh, strangers uh, that uh, approach me and ask for a ride, um, especially, you know, with my experience that like usually they're kind of drunk or something like that. And then it's like, I don't know if I feel safe. Uh, but in this case, you know, I accepted and brought him over, no issues. And afterwards, I just kind of decompressed a little bit. I, I just like tried to let that stress out of me because that whole time I was like, I had my hands on the wheel, both hands on the wheel the whole time. Uh, just kind of like as a martial artist, just kind of like testing my hands like feeling, feeling the, like the flexion and the tension that I could create, uh, you know, after learning for 12 years, how to make a knife hand, how to make a fist, you know, all this stuff in case something happened. Thankfully it didn't. And, you know, after I left him, I was like, huh, I'm recording Dragon Mine later. And, you know, for, in my, in my perception, this is an NPC and I'm the player character. And I wonder if this is something that could reflect why people tend to be really prone to violence in D&D. &D. Uh, like, you know, we've talked before, John, about how people tend to go for the kill really quickly. There's never really any time to debate uh, about whether or not you can, you should spare somebody's life. And actually you see this in, um, you know, I don't talk about him too much, but in Matt Mercer's campaign, um, a lot of his NPCs that uh, are, you know, in the middle of combat, um, if they feel, if, if he judges that it's a hopeless situation for them, and he judges that they can be cognizant of that, then they'll begin to cower. They won't fight anymore, but they'll still get killed by the party, which I think is potentially a misstep by the party, because to take a life is a really heavy burden, you know, unless you are, uh, <laughs> I was about to say gifted, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could call it that. Um, 
unless you are of the persuasion that you don't necessarily care about anyone except for yourself and your own survival, then it can be really tough and it can be really heavy on your conscience uh, to, to kill somebody or to break an arm or anything like that. It's traumatizing. Um, and that's why, you know, we train in the martial arts so that we can mitigate that trauma with experience and, and um, you know, professionalism and, and control above other things. Uh, so my, my thought basically here is that, you know, why I, I would like to discuss why player characters are so prone to finishing the fight in the most, uh, you know, lethal uh, outcome with the most, most lethal methods and <clears throat> how, how NPCs and player characters maybe should treat each other. How, should they maybe not hostile off the get-go, but wary, you know, if somebody approaches you, this was in the middle of town, what happened to me, you know, if somebody approaches you in the middle of the street and starts asking you questions about, you know, leads, maybe a party is looking for leads on, on, on the quest that they have, you know, should you be more wary? Should people be more wary? How safe should you feel? I think we might give it too much credit. You know, a lot of NPCs, you know, you just, you, you, they just, the party comes up, they talk to them and they give them answers to their questions. No problem. No, you know, no questions asked. <laughs> uh, and it's like, is that because the guards are around or like, what, like, would you, I mean, there's police in town, but I was still on guard. I was still wary. Or maybe it's just my training, you know? So that, that was kind of what I was thinking uh, first. Yeah. So this is a very rich topic that I'd like to spend some time on and really kind of unpack because there are a lot of dimensions that we can look at this through. So um, we're going to start with gameplay so that that way we have something concrete to go off of before sure. we get too philosophical or abstract with it. Yeah, um, yeah. And actually, I'd like to start with a, a personal anecdote, which you were a part of. So the, the latest campaign world I run is something called Gyrus, and it is a modified version of Eberron um, using what I love from Eberron's tone, but not quite as weird as Eberron can get. So yeah. like the dwarves in my world are pretty much like dwarves in any other fantasy setting unlike the dwarves of eberron which are tied very closely to like parasitic symbiotic <laughs> uh, organisms and stuff and there's like there, there's a a very specific relationship that the uh the dwarves of eberron have with the delk here um however one of the things i wanted to make abundantly clear in this world is, the, is what you were talking about, Ian, which is I, I don't want the party to always feel like they have to kill their, their opponents in combat, right? Um, and so in the first session, you know, we had a, we had a fellow player, um, like really like one of the, um, the enemy NPCs basically shut Ian's character offline. Um, Ian's character was a Warforged and Honestly, it was more of a miscalculation of the of the average damage <laughs> I was allowing this NPC to do, and he technically killed Ian's character. Now, Ian had worked very hard on developing a very cool backstory, <laughs> so I didn't want to rob him of all of that excitement of exploring this character and playing them by basically killing them off an hour into the first session. So, you know, I, I pulled a little DM maneuvering to basically be like, well, he more like 
like shut your character offline and we can like get him back online and you know something like that but that um, was afterwards that was afterwards like, yeah yeah so uh, understandably one of the other players having been playing and dming for years and years um killed the npc that killed his friend very standard thing the way he described it was super gory and violent and then i started describing how this enemy npc's friends reacted to this very violent demise and everyone was suddenly like felt really bad about it and there and then i i just said you don't have to like kill your enemies now one of the things the the reasons i feel that players default to that as like the end of a fight is uh, a combination of the game's mechanical design and uh how dms generally run combatants so a lot of times like you said like matt mercer may have an enemy cower or surrender i find that the majority of dms don't do that and for some creatures it doesn't make sense so like undead or elemental they they don't like <laughs> they don't have that same survival instinct as say like a humanoid npc or a beast you know so like an animal if you wound it it might react differently or like a person if you wound them may react differently they have a different kind of survival instinct but also there's only one real mechanic in the game that outright says like you can knock an enemy unconscious with a melee attack, but you have to declare it beforehand. So players have to jump through so many hurdles to try to non-lethally incapacitate a target. And while they're doing that, there's the real possibility that the enemy will take advantage of it. And again, if DMs are running their combatants lethally as well, you're trying to incapacitate them. They're trying to kill you. So I think a big part of it is also sometimes players are trained to what they are rewarded for. So if a player has a fireball workout, why wouldn't you prepare fireball, you know? So it's one of those things where I think that the first way to start to uh, address the philosophical question of why aren't my players sparing their enemies more, it's because mechanically they're being punished for trying. And because of that, they don't want to lose their characters. So it's better to just like kill off the enemy NPC and because they're, they're fictional anyway, it doesn't matter. You know, they're not, they're not thinking through the deeper question. And it's really interesting because I actually ran a, a different game with my grandmother whose goal was to, was to uh, diplomatically resolve encounters. And my mom and sister were like, nope, let's just set them all on fire. <laughs> and that was their immediate thing because years and years they've been trained. Like if I try to spare them, the enemy will take advantage of that. And I will be mechanically punished for attempting a non-lethal resolution. So I, I think that if we were to really look at the psychology, it's rooted in the game mechanics, which will tie into our secondary topic because I feel like a lot of times we try to ignore the mechanics for the story, but the story happens because of the mechanics, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, I think that's a good point um, that you made on, on like rewards there that a lot of, um, you know, the player, the player characters, 
they're expecting basically that there is no other option in some ways, like that everything is fight to the death. And I think part of this also stems from the kind of like old timey uh, feel you get from Dungeons and Dragons, the, the medieval fantasy, you know, this is this is war, basically, is how they approach the, the mindset with. Uh, which I mean, you know, back in back in the medieval times, it was a lot easier to justify killing somebody uh, when you felt threatened. Because uh, I mean, if you look at the Viking Age, um, one of the biggest things that was their concern was status. But by by status, I don't mean like money necessarily. It was that it was a very hard life. You had to work the farm all day, and uh, you had to make sure that you had like a weapon of some sort. Uh, to defend yourself against. And we talk about like Viking society as if they were all very close knit and stuff. And in some ways they were, but in other ways they had to make sure that they came across as tough enough to defend anyone, uh, defend against anyone who might want to steal their stuff. You had to appear strong in front of your neighbors. That was like the, the concept of masculinity back then, that you were, you were strong enough to want to be to, or strong enough that people would want to get along with you rather than just fight, push you over and take your stuff. Like, cause that's like a really cold climate, you know, their survival is very hard. Farming is very hard there. I'm surprised they were able to, you know, get through so much that uh, as, as much as they did to the, to the point where they could start trading with other countries um, or with other uh, places. But yeah, you know, like with the medieval times, we usually think about like medieval England, um, you know, serfs, serfdom, uh, people working uh, the, you know, the peasants and stuff like that. Um, they they were out for survival. And yeah, maybe they had the protection of the crown, but the crown could be miles away. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily straight outside of the castle every time anyway. Um, so their safety is always in jeopardy. And, and I feel like that has also, and of course, you know, we have the image of knights and shining armor or whatever. I feel like that has translated uh, almost intentionally into how people perceive d and I mean, just look at classic D&D, the dungeon crawls were very, uh, you know, gritty. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the DM rolled for a lot of the, the player's actions at the time uh, in like first edition or something. Um, but that changes also when you start putting it in a more modern context where you have police. Uh, we have somebody in the chat here who's uh, <clears throat> mentioned a module uh, for D&D, an older module uh, called City Beyond the Gate. And uh, that was apparently set in more of like a modern uh, setting, you know, with police, with, uh, you know, uh, electricity, perhaps, and things like that. And and it brings things a little bit more, you know, coherently to your to your perception of what reality is like, what life is like in these worlds. Uh, so I, I think that it's I, I think part of it, of course, is, like you said, is the reward system and, and how uh, people get rewarded for for, you know, killing others or happen it when they happen to have killed other people, you know, uh, they still fulfill their quest. They get the reward. Um, rather than, you know, engaging with other um, NPCs more amicably, uh, it's just like they they don't matter, like you said. So when it starts to, when you, when you call the city guards, when you, you know, when you call the police or whatever, that's when it matters. This isn't a one-time thing. This will follow you. 
this is what consequences are. And, you know, it's, it, it depends, of course, on, and we've, we've mentioned this before, how much realism you want in your escapism. If you don't want to have to deal with those consequences, um, then you can make it more like Skyrim, you know, like it's pretty easy to get away with, with brutal murder in, in Skyrim, especially with how uh, broken the stealth system is. And, you know, D&D is not Skyrim, but you can, you can probably, you can murder Hobo pretty easily, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I, I was, I've never actually encountered a murder hobo in my campaign uh, or, a, or another player or, you know, with my players when I'm DMing. Um, so I haven't had to employ anything uh, to discourage that. Um, but honestly, yeah, it, you know, the players are pretty, pretty powerful in D&D. So they, and, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, this might not be, you know, perfect power, but it's definitely better than Pretty much everyone else has all the commoners have like four hp so <laughs> so yeah the um i i think you just mentioned something that i did want to touch on which is um D D and how it reveals um individuals relationship with power and their relationship with uncertainty so because you are right like and i don't even think it was necessarily wrong for you to kind of be on guard you know, driving a stranger in your car, I honestly probably wouldn't have done it. Um, that's how guarded I would have been, you know? Um, but the D and D is a game who, which like with most TTRPGs, the main mechanic is based on probability and uncertainty. And I think that a lot of times you really get to know a person's relationship with uncertainty. Um, through their gameplay decisions and through how they choose to role play. So a lot of times when we get the players that like overthink or are really uncomfortable with how certain things resolve, it might just be that personally, they're very uncomfortable with uncertainty, which is why I actually, in that game that I mentioned earlier, um, I actually really limit dice rolling until it really matters. So a lot of times, if it's something like, oh, do my players find the clue? Do they find the lead? Um, I just see what their passive perception or investigation is and determine if that's high enough or use that to determine which character gets what clues. And then they get to organically decide how they share those clues with everybody, which also is very funny because a lot of times the players just don't. And I don't, I don't really know why they don't talk to each other, but yeah. it's, um, it is kind of interesting, but I, I think one of the really revealing things is that D and D as long as you're playing kind of baseline D and D, right. The initial assumption is that the player characters are remarkable, that even a level one adventurer is more remarkable than a commoner it places the player characters in a position of power relative to their peers. And how players express that power also can a lot of times reveal their relationship with power themselves. So, uh, you know, you were just mentioning that the murder hobo thing, you know? So do you have players that now that they're free to are willing to take lives a lot more liberally than they would in real life? Or, you know, do classically amoral things like steal from others or not really care if they ruin another NPC's life. 
Um, what do they do with that power? And I also think that it shows a lot to tie the two together. Um, a lot of times when you see weird moments at the table, it's when players lose that power or perceive a loss of power, because that's part of the uncertainty is, is if things are uncertain, power in D&D is how likely you can get an outcome to happen, right? That's expressed through a modifier mechanically. So like if I have a plus three to my strength, that's better than a plus one. I'm more powerful because I can more likely make something involving strength happen. Um, a lot of times if players are confronted by an enemy outside of their tier. So I've got a plus three modifier, but that big giant guy has a plus eight. Um, a lot of times players will get very uncomfortable because their power has been tested um, by something outside of themselves. And one of the things that I think is really interesting and, and I, I can compliment you on based on your anecdote that started this whole thing is um, there, there's a book by uh, John Acuff called Soundtracks is its latest book. And one of the biggest things I took away from it is most people think of things like power or uncertainty by extremes and like a switch mentality um, where it's either, I'm going to give this guy a ride. I'm not gonna give this guy a ride. Whereas in reality, the, um, the intensity of the situation is more like a dial where it's like, like you said, you're, you're analyzing the situation. All right, this guy is 70. He seems genuinely <laughs> in need of something, you know? Um, would I be able to handle myself in a hand-to-hand -hand altercation, like you said? Like, you're, you're kind of figuring out the probability of that, you know? And am I possibly going into a trap? Well, it depends on the area I'm living in. I guarantee, like if you were in downtown Chicago or something, it would be a different probability that you would be like um, moving through than like where we live. So it's, it's one of those things where I think a lot of times D&D, &D, even mechanically, gives very uh, true false binary kind of outcomes where it's like either I hit or I miss, I deal damage or I don't. Um, I'm able to succeed my save or fail my save. Whereas a lot of times what I'm interested in, what a lot of my homebrew does is really try to get players more involved in a dial. How much damage do I wanna do? Do I wanna commit to an all out spike damage attack? Or do I want to poke them a little bit and see what happens, you know, or do I not want to attack at all? Do I want to just take the dodge action? That might be perfectly reasonable too. Um, but I think that because D&D &D at its baseline, and I, I've never talked this out before. This is just kind of insight because it's a game system that has binary resolutions it does, it's either we kill the enemy or we die. Like those are like the options a lot of times that are running through a player's head. And there's been plenty of games I've played where I've tried to like talk to the enemy. And again, how a DM decides to do things like that says a lot about how they're training their players. So if they say like, oh, well to talk to them, it takes your action. Now I'm not gonna wanna talk to them because I don't wanna get, I don't wanna get hit by their attack because they're gonna use their action to step on me. So. <laughs> You know what I mean?
<clears throat> so there's two points there. Uh, one is that I feel like the binary kind of reaction is actually a lot more bestial, right? It's more animalistic. You're, you're using your lizard brain, right? Fight or flight, uh, fight, flight, or freeze rather. Um, which, uh, I mean, it's not binary in that case, but, uh, you know, it, it, animals tend to have that kind of, you know, uh, perception on things. Is this a threat to me? Can I kill it? Um, and, or can I get away? And so, I think that's what we have to keep in mind because uh, a lot of players say you have a player who is conscious uh, of, of what it is to take a life and doesn't want their, their player character to do that. Well, then they might have less qualms about taking a life of a, of a beast, like uh, in the Feywild or something, and they encounter some, or the Fey Dark, I guess, uh, and they encounter something that, um, you know, is wild and rampaging and stuff like that because it is an embodiment of a strong emotion, in this case, anger. So they might have less of a problem doing that, kind of like when you guys were fighting the orb piercer, you weren't going to stop and talk to that thing, you know, uh, <laughs> when it's like a big spiky porcupine just barreling over you guys. <laughs> like there's no talking to it. It might be sentient, but obviously it doesn't care. So there's only one choice run away or or kill it or die i guess but um i this kind of reminds me you said that it's binary uh most of the time it kind of reminds me of urban shadows uh, urban shadows is an rpg that uh is a, is set in a modern setting uh you it's a cityscape and um there's magic involved and things like that but it takes a lot more uh scientific magical realism kind of approach uh, to things. And what I think is interesting is that it doesn't run on a D20 system. It actually runs on a 2D6 system or 3D6 maybe. Um, no, I think it's 2D6. Uh, so basically uh, by putting this on a 2D6 system, you have a scale of success. So what they say is that if it's like three or below, you, you just don't succeed at all. Um, if it's between four and like eight or something like that, then it's a mixed success. Uh, I, I forget the exact numbers, but just, you know, for an example. And then if you go up to like 10 and 12, that's like a, that's you, you succeed at what you want to do. What a what introducing a mixed success does to the game is it creates the spectrum of outcomes. So if you're trying to persuade somebody to, assist you in uh you know in your quest basically in your job if you have a job that you need help with uh and they're feeling like a little iffy on it you could roll to persuade them uh i don't think there i don't think it's actually called that i think there's a specific word for it but um you try to persuade them you roll your dice if you get a mixed success that means that they're going to ask something of you and there's a list in the book of the various outcomes that a mixed success can uh you know uh, create. So uh, the DM usually determines for the NPC, just like we do, um, what uh, what they would want out of the mixed success. So it's like, okay, I'll help you with the, your job, but you're going to owe me a favor, which is usually the the scary thing in this, uh, um, this uh, setting. Uh, or yeah, but you're going to have to pay me like a lot more or something because I don't know you or something like that. And so uh, I think that could, in some ways, uh, be a solution to the problem of, of uh, you know, outcomes being binary in D&D. Um, I can't guarantee it. And, you know, it's not the same thing as on a, 
you know, D20 system. Um, but then again, you know, people like with, if you look at random encounter tables, people have been starting to move more towards less D20 determines what you get and more D12 plus a D8 creates a different curve, a uh, different, uh, yeah, a different bell curve that uh, will determine what your random encounter is, where it's like, if you, if the DM feels that, uh, or let's say, you know how you have to beat the DC. If the D, some modules do this, if the DC, if the DC check fails by like five or more, then something extra happens. So that extra thing could be determined by such a table. Um, I'd have to go and look at the exact wording that Urban Shadows uses, but I think that it could be uh, pretty, you know, accurate in terms of trying to create more of a spectrum on things. Um, but that would be, like I said, moving more away from the D20 system. And I'm not sure, you know, I don't have, I don't know if I have really the experience to rely on at this moment. Um, so I'm just speculating. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I just want to also be kind of clear on is I'm not like dissing binary resolutions <laughs> as a game mechanic. Um, I, I was actually going to say the same thing you said, Ian, which is you can introduce, you see it in, I think, even Vandelver, uh, which was the first module for fifth edition, uh, which is where you might, if you succeed by five or more, there's like an extra success. So it's like, or if you fail by five or more, there's an extra penalty. Um, but uh, like, I was even actually to bring a martial arts example into this. Um, yesterday for our students that are training for their black belt exam coming up really soon, um, we were going over knife and firearm defense. So if somebody again is trying to mug you like a full circle, um, and, and one of the things I always teach with that is, you know, if it's an open-handed encounter, right? So they have their fists, you have your fists. That's a different level of seriousness than if somebody decides to bring a weapon to an encounter. That as soon as someone um, decides to bring a weapon into the interaction, they've forfeited their right to uh, not get hurt. So, and it's one of those things where even, even from white belt, one of the things our school teaches is to, first of all, recognize what is a skillful and appropriate response. So if you're a six-year-old on the playground and another six-year-old grabs your arm or your wrist, you know, they don't have their right to put their hands on you without permission. Also, you shouldn't practice punching them in the face <laughs> because yeah, you get in a lot of trouble for that and you don't want to get in trouble for somebody else's bad decision. So we teach them a nice little jujitsu release and then, you know, they, and then teach them the aftercare to some kind of conflicts like that. I also tell them because we've had this too, where, you know, a kid is getting punched at and they're like, well, I didn't want to use my karate irresponsibly. And it's like, if somebody's trying to punch you, you have permission to block or guard or something, you know? So I, I think that for D and D again, a lot of the times it's like, you know, this is the enemy in the encounter. We have to eliminate them and reduce their zero, their hit points to zero. But what does it mean to reduce their hit points to zero? If you're like a level two or a level three adventuring party, and you know, you're dealing with some brigands that are up to something in town, 
that might be a, a different level of seriousness than if you're an epic level encounter and the lich is trying to suck the life you know from this entire plane of existence you know you may have uh, different levels of severity to deal with so I'm not saying you should never kill your enemies in a D&D game, right? There, there's a lot of, um, there's definitely a lot of scenarios where that's appropriate. I just think that DMs get used to always having that be the thing and mixing it up can be, uh, lead to more interesting gameplay and honestly lead to more interesting story moments. Yeah. Yeah. Actually one of our uh, viewers here, uh, mentioned pretty much the same thing that, uh, you know, it's, it often feels like there is no binary choice. It's not live or die. It's not kill or, or be killed or run away or whatever. Um, the DM often has something in mind when they plan these encounters. So if they, so a little bit more old schooling DM, uh, old school DMing, excuse me, uh, would be like, you want the party to kill these guys, or you want these guys to basically knock out at least a couple of the party members or something like that. Um, you know, if a DM has a, a heavier hand, they won't hesitate to, to make sure that the encounter is not going to go well for them uh, or something like that, which is why, like you said, and, and this is my approach as well, that I as the DM would make sure that the players aren't left guessing uh, whether or not this is a lethal encounter. I would make sure that, <clears throat> you know, my descriptions reflect the hostility of the situation if it's a sentient creature there is emotion there it's not just killing somebody it's not just a a, a dummy you know to punch uh these are actual living creatures uh actual beings and you know with animals it's a little bit different you know it's it is a little bit more fight or flight you need to be prepared to end this animal's life if they go for the kill but if you roll a successful animal handling check hey, you know, what's wrong with that, right? Uh, and, you know, when I play my encounters, I often find myself falling into that trap as well. Like, you know, how do I want my players to react to this encounter? You, and, and that's the classic DM blunder is that you shouldn't try to anticipate everything your players are going to do because if you lean too hard in one direction and then they go in the other, then it's going to mess up your gameplay. Uh, that's the same thing with, that's actually a Zen lesson. Uh, <laughs> for those out there who are interested in that, uh, in Zen Buddhism, in the older Zen Buddhism, I should say, um, they, uh, they tend to say that uh, there's this thing with the Zen stick, really, uh, that the Zen master will often slap a student with the stick from any given direction at random times during the day. Uh, and this is, you would think like, oh, this is to make sure that they're, they become like more aware of their surroundings or paranoid or, or whatever, like fearful of an attack. But that is actually only the surface lesson, really. The next lesson, once you get over that is an attack can come from anywhere. And I shouldn't put my energies into thinking I should defend from one direction when an attack could come from anywhere. So that's, uh, that's something that you can kind of uh, implement as a DM that, hey, maybe your players are going <laughs> to pull a fast one and, and and wriggle out of the situation that you put them in, even though you thought it was pretty clear that there is no way to get out, but they do it. And then, you know, what do you do? You just adapt, <laughs> adapt, overcome, survive, <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, something like that. But yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I think that's a pretty good uh, way to round off this situation that 
it's, it is about adaptation and um, evaluating the circumstances you're in. I think the core of Dungeons and Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, Dungeon Master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro-campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts. So this next topic is something that I've been thinking about for a little while, and, and it's it stems from the fact that I was never really sure how to feel about it, uh, because it's a decision that I see made in anime, for example, uh, in manga, uh, isekai manga, uh, isekai anime, and uh, which is, um, that is to say, the uh, transport to another world usually ends up in like a fantasy world or something like that. Uh, like in uh, that time I got reincarnated as a slime, um, Konosuba, which is pretty nuts. I don't know if you've seen that one, John. It's pretty good. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, and, um, you know, some others like that is, uh, and the thing is, um, I think it's, I, I, it might just be a tool that they use to try and get the viewer more immersed, like to understand how the world works without, you know, just, uh, throwing them in there and not explaining anything. It's probably just like as a exposition point for the most part, but uh, I see it in D&D sometimes too, which is that DMs sometimes choose in their, in their universes to have a world where the classes of D&D exist. Like people say, oh, he's a barbarian. Oh, he's a fighter. Oh, he's a wizard. I mean, wizardry is like a little bit different, but like you know, it's like barbarian for, for me, it's like barbarian. That's like the big one. Like, what do you mean barbarian? Like anybody could be a barbarian. Anybody could have the rage ability. That doesn't mean they look like a bumbling, you know, brigand or whatever. And, uh, you know, a rogue isn't always going to be strapped in leathers or something like that. A cleric isn't always going to be in a flowing robe with religious iconery on, on their, um, on their stuff. And, uh, so that's one thing, right? Like some, sometimes they'll choose to do that. Another thing is spell slots. Sometimes uh, DMs will choose to allow players to use, well, or rather the players will choose to use the term spell slots when describing things in combat. And we've talked about how there's ludonarrative harmony in D&D and that your story should match the mechanics. That's one thing. Um, and that you know, metagaming for the sake of being strategic in combat at the table uh, isn't always such a bad thing because you don't want to limit your player character's ability to be successful in combat just because, oh, I wasn't paying attention at the time at which this important thing happened or my uh, character saw something and does, decides not to communicate to the other characters. Uh, what this uh, potential weakness could be in the opponents. And, you know, we thought we've, we've argued against that, but like, I've always felt that like the actual mechanics of the game, it's hard for me to justify using them in my world. It's hard for me to justify saying, oh, you know, this guy's a barbarian. Oh, you know, this guy's a rogue. Like those are 
those are kind of like terms that I feel exist more outside of the game. I've never been comfortable with using them. And it always makes me cringe a little bit when I, when I hear people use it, nothing against how they run their tables, but it's just not how I would do it. And the thing with spell slots, you know, you can get around saying spell slots by saying, oh, I think I only have like one or two of those more in me. Um, and that would be one reason I would argue for the spell points system because it works more like mana. So it's like I'm running out of magic, you know, ability right now or something like that, as opposed to I've only got so many more bullets to, to fire out of this magic gun. But I, I'm kind of rambling a little bit. Uh, it's or ranting a little bit because it's just like it gets me, you know, it's just like it gets me every time I hear it. I'm just like ah just use descriptors like come on and uh, like i said people run their game how they want but like that is something that i tend to stay away from uh so that's that's my thing john uh, that's my concern most of the time yeah so um i think one of the things that meta language at the table a lot of the criticism i hear is that it can interrupt immersion which um, can kind of harm the narrative experience at the table. Uh, it is one of the reasons why we've opted for the specific format we have during COVID times and beyond, to be honest, which is, um, you know, at the tables that, that we run right now online, um, the gameplay is almost like a real-time play-by-post in that the narrative that the players are doing happens in, uh, in the chat of rule 20, but if somebody has a meta question or something to clarify about it, um, they can just use their voice to ask so that there's like an official record of the, the actual narrative versus kind of the more jokey or lighthearted discussion. And it actually has led to more dramatic storytelling and less confusion over, am I speaking in character? Am I speaking out of character? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that this is also a personal thing that might be helpful to anyone listening, which is I've always viewed the class part of D&D's game design to be a, a way to, con like, a gameplay construct to create your character's abilities. But the explanation doesn't necessarily match that in the world. So what I mean by that is when you're creating a character that's a barbarian, the way I look at it is this is a character that can get some kind of boost, whether that boost is explained in the game world as a supernatural adrenaline. So they call upon their ancestors totem spirit and that's what gives them their rage. Or maybe they're just that mad that they just don't recognize the pain when it happens. Or maybe they've done like, some sort of training to increase their, both their spiritual strength and their physical strength. It doesn't have to be a literal rage for barbarians. It could be, it could be like the, what I see is that lore is guidance or a starting place for players that want that, but it doesn't have to be in the same way that for me, like, I think a warlock is a very story rich uh, class in fifth edition. And if I had a player that wants the warlock mechanics, but doesn't want to deal with the patron stuff, well, this character has warlock mechanics, but they might have a creative reason for why they have magic the, the way they do, you know? So 
And I think that that opens up storytelling possibilities rather than saying, well, no, the book says it has to be a patron and I'm not comfortable with not following the book. Now, that being said, there are certain terms that can be useful for world building. Um, but I think one of the, the issues with um, kind of really codifying certain things is that there is so much thematic overlap in, in fifth edition's design. So a good example would be like the druid, right? So let's say we have a druid that's religious and prays to one of D&D's many nature gods. Storytelling wise, how is that different in terms of its significance and meaningfulness to a nature domain cleric that also worships a, a, a nature god, you know? We can have a semantic argument, but at the end of the day, does it really matter unless your players are having fun? Now, if your players want a tighter experience like that, like let's say they did like a parody campaign like Konosuba, right? Then, um, then that might have a different flavor to it. But I do think there are certain terms that can be used for world building um, as long as the DM is very clear with their players what it means. So for example, like in my latest game world that I've been talking about, there are druids, there are the druid circles and the druids come from a specific place. That doesn't mean that if you create a druid, you have to come from that place. That's the base lore. It gives players something to build off of if they want, but if they want a druid where say like their, their character's story is that they discover these nature powers after some time, what does that mean for their character? You know, they can use the druid mechanics, but say have the story of a sorcerer, perfectly fine, you know? Um, but I do agree that there are certain terms where if it's an obvious game construct, it can actually feel more artificial to try to plug that in and ultimately more limiting to the stories that can be told rather than acknowledging the artificial nature of a lot of the game rules. And that way, even though it's like kind of an artificial structural thing, we can get it out of the way to acknowledge the narrative representation. If you think about any RPG video game, like let's use Final Fantasy. In a Final Fantasy battle in this, the game world, the diegetic game world, I highly doubt your four party members are lining up in a perfectly straight line and looking at a guy and taking turns, stepping forward and hitting them and then stepping backward, you know? But we as gamers understand the, we're, we're smart enough to understand the construct of we're representing the battle this way, but this isn't literally what's happening in the game story. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point as well, that like in anime, for example, you can show battles in the moment. Like, you know, it's hard sometimes to remember in D&D that each round is about six seconds and everybody's turn happens within those six seconds, uh, which means that everybody's going simultaneously. Uh, and the whole point of initiative is to really judge how reactive a character is. So if they roll a higher initiative, that means they get they are able to act first, which means other characters need to react uh, re uh, appropriately. Um, an enemy who's like at the top of the round every time always has the upper hand, basically, because they get their chance to deal damage first. Um, and in the game, you know, like you said, it looks like you're just kind of standing there. I don't know if you've seen this uh, TikTok 
lately, but there's like a one where, and, and I can't imagine what must go into the cosplay for these things, but basically these guys have like uh, amazing costumes on and they're like dynamically dressed and they got like all their warrior stuff and they're like fighting some, they're, they're a whole like, uh, what do you call it? Well-rounded party. And they're fighting these orcs. These orcs ambush them and they're like, ah, it's the orcs, go kill them. Yes, don't let them get, a, don't let them leave alive. And one's a Goliath, obviously, because of the markings, to be honest. Um, and he, uh, he, he like takes his turn and, and this is all cut with jump cuts, right? So everybody's doing everything simultaneously in our minds. But the Goliath breaks the meta because he looks around and sees that everybody's just kind of standing around and then uh, on a, like at random intervals, they'll jump forward and stab another person or they'll like cast their healing magic and in turn order. And he's like, what, why are we waiting? Why, why are we waiting our turns? And, and it gets a little meta and, it, and that's kind of funny because what he does next and this is a TikTok, so I don't mind spoiling it. Um, what he does next is he's just like, why, why are we waiting at all? Just, just do it. And then he goes and kills all of the rest of the enemy opponents all by himself because they can't do anything because it's not their turn <laughs> or whatever. And he's like, I'm going to ignore turns. But I just think it's really interesting how, how like that's, that's how, if you take it literally, that's what it looks like. And that's why, in some ways, combat can actually be less immersive than in normal situations like exploration or social interaction, because you have you are forcing yourself to conform to a structure that is inherently flawed and artificial. You just can't let it be, you know, natural, and it doesn't come naturally to our our perception as as people, and so. I think that um, using, you know, it, it's tough because you need to make sure it's balanced because otherwise there's no, uh, otherwise it's just storytelling and there's no like actual dice rolling really. Um, and maybe a little bit for skill checks, but nothing like dangerous. Um, but at the same time, if you have too much dice rolling and you, your turns are taking five minutes a piece, like it's gonna it's gonna people are gonna like peter off they're gonna like look in the look on their phones they're gonna start doodling or whatever i mean some people doodle to listen but you know they're they're gonna be unimmersed and i think that i i think what you're saying is a very good point that using some of the language not all of it but some of the language of the book doesn't necessarily have a place in the universe um you know, I, I love the stories of the, the characters in the book, but we have to remember that they are archetypical. The whole point of having these stories attached to the classes is because uh, Wizards of the Coast was like, this is how we did it in our world. And it's it serves as a template, basically. Yeah, well, and there's also um, a lot of value in recognizing the ease of shorthand so just to get the mechanical understanding out of the way, then again, what the narrative of the game is. So there's been plenty of times where, um, let's say I'm a player in an encounter and I'm, let's just say I'm a sorcerer and I'm trying to get this, uh, this deck save uh, on this creature. And it's like, oh, they succeeded their save. They take zero damage. It's like, oh, that must be an evasion ability. You know, um, I diegetic to the world's narrative i'm not saying my character is sitting there doing his idle animation going he must have the evasion feature 
Like, <laughs> but again, it's just to understand, oh, you know, the narrative is what it is. This is a fast creature that's good at dodging. You know, it has a supernatural speed about it. But to understand the mechanics, the shorthand is, oh, it's just evasion, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now.